HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. If you're just tuning in for the first time, I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and each week I'm joined by a chef, a restaurateur, and over the course of our chat, over the long episode that we have about to unfold in front of you, we talk one-on-one about the trajectory of their career, where they started, uh, where they worked, and where they are now. Today, I'm happy to welcome Chef Patrick Miller to the program. He has been at Rucola in Borum Hill, Brooklyn, since 2011. It's a small, always packed perfect realization of the neighborhood restaurant. It's tucked into a corner of a building on a residential block, and it serves uh, unpretentious northern Italian dishes, antipasti, homemade pasta, uh, roasted uh, fish and meat mains, and of course, they serve Italian liquor, which we'll be talking about uh, later on in the episode. Patrick has cooked in San Francisco, Spain, and New York. He attended the CIA in Hyde Park, and he is working on his own project, which we're going to keep a little secret until the second half of the show, and then we're going to jump into that. But it is set to hopefully open in uh, fall of 2018. But first, we get to ahead of ourselves. Patrick, welcome to the line. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to start at the beginning. 
why did you pursue a career in food? What drove you to, uh, to get involved in the culinary world? Uh, growing up in uh, kind of a large family, my mom was always making dinner pretty much every night for us. And so I think it was through that exposure to kind of like care and nurturing people uh, that, and also just kind of being a fat ass on the inside that like I just love to eat. So uh, learning how to make food that tasted good was also part of, I think, what drove me. Uh, also money, you know, like working for catering companies was a great way to make some cash as a high school kid. Uh, and so I think that's where it started. Where did you grow up? Uh, in San Marino, California, a small like city right outside of L.A. And so a lot of good produce in California. Tons. Huge, huge exposure to uh, delicious food year-round because there's not much, much of a winter and you're adjacent to a lot of farms. Uh, what was your childhood like eating-wise? Were you sort of like an all-American macaroni and cheese out the box family or did you, did you do the whole farm stand thing? Well, it was definitely a mix of the two. Um, you know, growing up, uh, when I was younger at least, uh, my mom was single for a few years. And so it was definitely lots of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and like ham roll-ups that I threw in the microwave. But uh, after that, you know, I think we, we never really went to the farmer's market too much, but she definitely was always very careful to make sure that we had um, really like a good selection of food at home. Not too much out of the freezer, not too much pre-prepared, but she always spent a lot of time and a lot of care uh, making dinner for us. And was her mother from Italy? Her mother was from Italy, yeah. What part? Uh, Northern Italy, so from Piemonte. Um, and her father was from also the same region, from Genoa, uh, and her father was from Piemonte, so from like Asti. So both Northern Italian. Is... Was your grandmother the sort of traditional Italian grandmother standing over a pot of sauce? Yeah, she definitely cooked. Um, I mean, as far as I knew her, um, she cooked quite a bit. Um, but I think maybe before I was born, that might have been a different scenario. But um, yeah, she. Uh, I remember her making some very, very delicious food. Uh, unfortunately, you know, like it wasn't for very long. But uh, yeah, she definitely was a huge huge inspiration. Uh, and I kind of like honor her and my grandfather in another way, which we'll talk about, I think later in the show. The, the, the childhood catering jobs that you alluded to briefly, you know, you're what, 14, 15, 16, and you get what a dishwashing job or a delivery job for a catering company. What is that? What are those first jobs look like? And really, are you, are you in it? Or are you just saying, Oh, I'm making some money. It happens to be food. Uh, I think I, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't a dishwasher. I was actually just more of a, a server slash back waiter, uh, for a catering company in Pasadena when I was about 17. Uh, and so that was actually a great way to make a little bit of cash and whatever food was left over, they just gave to the servers and everybody else. So I would come home with like huge containers of, you know, steak or whatever, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I kind of had that catering job into my, my college years. And then once, uh, I went to college, uh, I found a small restaurant Italian, um, that I became a prep cook at. And so I did some prep work there, uh, while I was going to school in California. Yeah. In California. So I graduated from high school and then went to, 
um, a small liberal arts university called the University of Redlands, which was kind of like outside L.A. in between Palm Springs and L.A. So the Redlands the is like a collective school, right? Aren't there four or five or something that are involved together or no? No, oh, I, think I, thought, I thought there was uh, a bunch of small Cal liberal schools that are part of that. You know what? Actually, while I was going to school there, they opened up one, I think, close to the beach. I think that actually is right. Gotcha. Yeah, since then, they might have branched out more. I think you're right, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you finish there, or did you stop and finished. go to culinary school? Yeah, I finished. It so was, you got a undergraduate degree in what? Like, what did you think you might be doing with your life at that point? Uh, you know, I think, uh, to give you a short answer, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Uh, I had been playing uh, the drums for about, I think, like 10 or 12 years at that point. So I just figured I was going to be a musician. So I went there on a music scholarship, actually, um, for the drums and for percussion. So uh, that and being in like a band and being in a couple different sort of like um, kind of like music groups there uh, was a big part of what I did while I was at school. But um, the way that I made it work for like spending cash and day to day, week to week rent, uh, was by working at restaurants. So um, I graduated with a degree in international relations and Spanish, so could have been an ambassador. <laughs> kind of missed the boat. Uh, I also have an international relations degree. See, see? I'd love- and here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, while I was at uh, the University of Redlands, I worked at uh, a couple restaurants, one not so good and one significantly better, um, one was called uh, Farm, and the chef there was the one who kind of taught me. Roberto Argentina, he was the one who taught me um, how to be a cook, how to pr- properly cook things, how to set up your station, how to be organized, how to cook meat, everything, 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 everything. So it's really like thanks to this guy that he really kind of like took me and kind of like made me into a cook. And he also suggested at that point that, well, you know, since you are good at this and you are going to be graduating soon, why don't you think about going to cooking school and kind of like hone your craft? And so it was through that suggestion that I kind of was like, okay, well, maybe the next step is cooking. Because I was like, well, either be a musician and go that route or maybe be a cook or chef and people always have to eat, you know. So it was more of a pragmatic decision than than anything. Um, When I graduated, I was like, all right, well, uh, let's be a let's be a cook, I guess. Did you feel like you were totally leaving your music career behind you when you made the decision to go to Hyde Park? Because you had focused for a very long time on that and to move across the country and say, all right, I'm going to veer down a different different path. Did you feel like you were putting it on hold or did you feel like you had maybe put an end to that chapter? Uh, I kind of thought that maybe I would always have it to fall back on as a hobby. Unfortunately, drums are not a guitar. You know what I mean? So they take up space. They're extremely loud. They're not portable. So uh, they're still in the garage at my mom's house. Thank you, Mom, for keeping them there. Um, but one day I will you know, transport them to wherever I am living or wherever I have space and just bang the hell out of them. Yeah, it's not like the best neighborly decision in New York to be the drum guy. Everyone's no. like, yeah, they're they're really great. They're so clean. Uh, he plays drums at 9 p.m. every single night. I mean, considering how loud my neighbors are upstairs. <laughs> Maybe I, you can you com- know, combat that I, with some drums. Yeah, I'd love to just bring my snare drum home and just, you know. Anyway. Uh, why, uh, why CIA? Why New York State? Uh, of all the places, like you already had some 
fundamentals of cooking, right? So this guy, Roberto Argentina, teaches you some things. He says go to culinary school. You go to culinary school 2,500 miles away. Why? Uh, he mentioned that he thought it was the best culinary school in the country. And um, at that time, the I think it was like California Culinary Academy um, had kind of just started. And it was actually in my hometown, Pasadena. So I could have gone there really easily. But he thought that for the money that I was going to spend, that considering they both were about the same, monetarily speaking, that the quality of the education at CIA was better. What, so. did, what did your mom think when you said, hey, I just finished four years of college. I'm going back to school. It's a different field that I am now passionate about. Uh, my parents were completely supportive, luckily. They said, you know what, you got to do what you got to do. If um, this is what you're interested in, this will help you get you know, to where you want to be, then do it by all means. Um, I had to explain a little bit to some other people why it was a good decision, but I think in the end, ultimately, I was able to convince them that it was the right thing to do. Culture shock and classroom shock when arriving at CIA, or did it kind of feel normal? Was it back in school again, or did you say, what have I gotten myself into? It, it was strangely comfortable. Um, you know, you're there with a lot of people who are uh, very similar to you and who have, um, it, I guess, similar in the scope of their goal, right? Everybody wants to go there to learn to be a better cook, but completely different as far as obviously their backgrounds or what they've experienced in life or why, maybe why they're there. But um, yeah, it felt pretty comfortable. You know, I was able to just kind of like slide right in. It felt, did feel like going back to school because it was school, you know, show up, sit down, listen to a professor talk for two hours. But instead this time it was about, you know, like product ID or, um, you know, like the history of wine or something. So it was a lot more interesting than high school. Did you, did you get an opportunity as a, as a young kid or even as a young man to visit Italy either alone or, or with any family members like prior to going to culinary school? Was your exposure to Italian food only in the United States? It had been only in the U.S. at the point. Um, but my family did, since has gone on a couple vacations to Italy. Um, and I had gone on maybe like a vacation to Spain. So I had been exposed to... Uh, some cuisine in Europe, but not really to the extent that I have, obviously now, but, you know. Uh, and, and so what's what's the first gig after you leave CIA? Well, it was an interesting ending to, uh, to the CIA because right before I graduated, I noticed that I had like this little bump on my neck and uh, I just figured it was my lymph nodes were inflamed because I had a cold or something, so... I go to the school doctor at CIA and they're like, oh, take some, you know, take some Advil, whatever. So it doesn't go away for a couple of weeks and I'm encouraged by my now uh, girlfriend slash partner, Claire, to go see a doctor. So I go see a doctor and they said the same thing. So I go see another doctor and they're like, I'm going to refer you to get a biopsy. So I go get a biopsy done. And uh, when I'm there and this guy's taking the biopsy, he has a needle like in my neck and he's taking a sample and he says, Oh, that's weird. Oh, and God. I was like, dude, that is not what you say to somebody right now. Totally. <laughs> so anyway, he's like, we'll call you in two weeks. They call me the next morning. They're like, the doctor needs to see you right now. So I was like, Oh shit, this is not good. So I drove over there. Uh, and I got there and he said, listen, like I have some terrible news. You have stage two non Hodgkin's lymphoma. You have cancer. Like you got to get treatment for it. Um, like right now. Cause it's very aggressive. So I was like, okay, well I guess, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, here's another another hurdle, right? So I graduated two days later, 
moved back home to California and uh, went to the City of Hope, where I got um, some incredible treatment. At that point in time, they hadn't made the advances that they have now with like immunotherapy and stuff. So they wanted to do radiation to get rid of it because it started in my neck. Um, but I said that they had said that it would adversely affect my ability to taste. And so I figured, well, that's probably not the best route to go. So just hit me with all the chemo you got and uh, let's go that route. So I was there for about four months, had a whole bunch of stuff done. Um, but at the end was victorious and, uh, free and clear of uh, cancer. So pretty huge. So, so that was the first move. Before you even were able to <clears throat> do anything with your degree, with mm. your new CIA degree, yeah. you end up doing four months of chemotherapy. Yeah. And every single day you wake up and you're getting medicine pumped into your body. Yeah, it was and, pretty... And I imagine it's painful and, and frightening. And were you... Did, did you come to terms at any point with the fact that uh, there may not be a, a, a future? Did it, did it feel like it was very real at any point that um, you may not make it? Uh, I think from the, the, the onset, the doctor that I had said, you have a good chance of beating this. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, you know, it's like you have a 60% chance of beating this if we go very aggressively. And so I said, go very aggressively because I, I need to have a life. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's weird because looking back on it, it never really like, um, like made me super anxious or made me super scared. Or I think I just kind of viewed it as an obstacle, obviously a huge and terrible obstacle. But, um, I think I, just kind of like put, put like blinders on and was like, all right, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to go through whatever I got to go through. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were some days when I was, you know, just like laying in that hospital bed and I felt terrible uh, that I was like, man, when I get out of here, I'm going to be so grateful and I'm going to be so happy that I'd never have to fucking deal with this ever again. Uh, and it's, it's true. I mean, going through something like that just gives you an enormous sense of gratitude uh, for everything, like anything that you experience afterwards. Is it the type of thing that every day you think about or do now that it's many years ago, do you go days, maybe even a week at a time? And do you ever forget that that happened to you? Does uh, it seem like a, like a distant memory or a dream in, a, in any way? It definitely seems like a distant memory, but I never, f I never really forget that it happened um, or that I went through it. Um, but there are some, sometimes like July 21st is like the anniversary of when I was told I was cancer free. So going on 13 years now. Um, and sometimes I do f like miss the anniversary just cause I'm at work and I'm not thinking and I'm just, you know, again, I have just like blinders on. I'm just going through, going about my daily business. But, um, I definitely, I think every day I'm just like imbued with a little bit more gratitude. Some days less than others. Cause right, whatever we're human, you know, sometimes you have a shitty day, but um, you know, I definitely overall am super grateful for the fact that I do get to experience life. So you go into remission, you have, uh, you, you have sort of a, a new outlook and then 
what happens next? Do you take time for yourself? Do you launch into, do you say, all right, I'm, I'm strapping into work right away? Like, what is the next step after somebody says, you've gone through the hardest thing that you might ever go through, and uh, okay, now go back to your uh, normal, normal daily life? life. Yeah, uh, no, it was definitely strap into work because it was my, that was what I was about to do before, you know, I had to go through all that, that shit. So um, I definitely was ready to go live any sort of semblance of a normal life. So I moved up to San Francisco and stayed with a few guys who had been roommates of mine in the past or friends in the past, which was kind of cool. So I had uh, one of my friends from elementary school, another friend from culinary school, and another friend from college who we were all together in the same apartment. Uh, so that was kind of nice. Um, it really felt like uh, I was around like family. So that was very comfortable. Um, what was very uncomfortable was my first restaurant job there which was at Rubicon uh, with uh, Stuart Brioza and Nicole Krasinski, who now have the very successful uh, restaurants in San Francisco, The Progress, and uh, uh, State Bird. So, um, yeah, starting to work with, after having gone through all that stuff and having that be my first job was a, a big kind of a learning curve, a, ste- a steep learning curve. Because of the way that they pushed in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. There's a level of intensity that they're that they are known for, and a sort of a pursuit of perfection, which has <laughs> they're known coast to coast for for that. Uh, what was uh, what were the kitchen vibes there? And then you did go on to work at State Bird, or no? I, I didn't work at State oh, Bird, okay. no, unfortunately. Although that would have been a really fun time, I think. Um, no, uh, it was a Michelin starred restaurant, and he um, had been the chef there, I think, for a couple years. So and. I think right after I started, they got their star. Not that I had anything to do with it, but um, they. Uh, so they there was a real sense of uh, you know professionalism. Uh, we had to, there was like lunch one day a week on a Wednesday, so everybody worked a double on a Wednesday. So it was it was a demanding restaurant, and I think it was there that um, what Roberto had kind of like set me up to be. Um, Stewart had kind of like hacked away all the sharp edges and kind of like polished me a lot more because I actually saw myself become a better cook. And it's, it's crazy when you actually go, um, and you're pushed so hard that like you see yourself from that plateau of kind of like not being a great cook to actually like, you know, you don't have to get there two hours early. You're, you're getting your mise en place done early. You're doing extra stuff. Um, so instead of being like the new guy that's always behind, you're the guy that's like pushing the other guy who's always behind. Somebody comes over and asks you a question and you say, Oh, I know the answer to that. Yeah, and exactly. also I can lean over your station and immediately kind of know what you may need. Yeah. Uh, do you remember s- service there? What, what was, because it's, it's dramatically different. I would assume than than Rucola service because size of the kitchen, the amount of staff that you have, but just, uh, in terms of Rubicon standing as a standalone restaurant, how many bodies in the kitchen and what was a, a service like? I think there were about five of us in the savory kitchen and then uh, pastry was upstairs and there was a private dining room on one of the floors above that. So pastry, I think I had two or three people with Nicole and then um, Stuart was actually cooking and working the line most of the nights just because just that's just what he loved to do. There was a expo and there were dedicated runners. So the cook, like Stewart, pretty much never had to expo. Uh, cooks all had copies of their tickets, which I don't now. Um, and uh, yeah, there were I think about five cooks in there, so there were a lot of bodies, and uh, it was a, you know classic kind of professional 
uh, service. Um, you know, pretty pretty organized, a um, little bit of chaos, but uh, you know, all in all, a, a really good experience. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about New York and Rucola. Stick with us here on the line. this weekend. They've asked you to bring wine. You need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory, Vivino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile, then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Vivino. Wine made easy. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Chef Patrick Miller. He is currently the chef at Rucola, located in Brooklyn. So you joined Rucola in 2011. You've been there for quite a long time, a lot longer than most people stay at restaurants. And pretty much from the jump, that restaurant has been slammed. Uh, it It's a small spot, as I as I said. It's, what, 35, 40 seats maybe? Yes, I think with the bar and outside seating, we've got about 50-ish. A tight 50. It's, uh, yeah, like after <laughs> after seven years, I still have no idea how many seats we have. But And it's it's just, it's incredibly rare to go there and not see a wonderful cross-section of people from Brooklyn filling tables. It has... It is a true neighborhood restaurant. It is what a lot of people aspire to do when they open up a restaurant, which is have people that come there for special occasions and people that come there three, four nights a week. You've been a part of it from the beginning. You now run the kitchen. Um, Can you just speak to that experience of growing up within and with a restaurant? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first year we opened, 
Uh, I was not the chef. Um, my friend Joe Pasqualetto, uh, who I met at Gilt, which is where I worked before uh, here in New York, uh, opened it up with me. So he was, it was like kind of like his vision in the beginning uh, with Julian, uh, Julian Prezi being kind of like the guy who managed the floor, had the day-to-day things uh, ironed out. So, uh, you know, the first year or two of restaurants open, it's, you're pretty much just like running for your life trying to make sure there's enough of everything and that people are happy. I think the first night of service, we uh, we didn't have a communal table. And so since there was still some construction going on in the basement, we actually used two sawhorses and a gigantic piece of plywood that had been downstairs that ran almost the length of the communal table. And the seats were so short that the table was like, I think like four inches below the neck of the person who was sitting at it. So it was a super uncomfortable <laughs> table to sit at, but we made it work. And not uh, the most wonderful opening night dining experience, but no, but people came back and, uh, you know, it's crazy cause we, the, the kitchen there is all induction, right? Cause it's, um, I think like a historical like building or landmark or something. So we couldn't add gas lines. Um, and that for the, I think the first two or three weeks of service there, we only had two induction burners no ovens so we were like roasting asparagus and like braising short ribs and stuff in julian's apartment upstairs um and bringing them downstairs to the restaurant so you know it's like it was like a real sort of like get it done however you can do it uh mentality and the the menu and and the construction of it i assume it's changed over time as you've gotten a lot more equipment in there but it really is uh it's very approachable and accessible. It starts off with some meats and some cheeses, some antipasti, and then there's always a couple uh, market-driven salads, for, for I guess lack of a better descriptor, and then um, some pastas and some proteins. Uh, how much creativity do you feel like you've had over the last couple of years while still staying in the realm of, of the rucola, northern Italian cuisine? Well, um like you asked, like, what's it like growing up and like changing with the restaurant? Um, the cuisine there has changed. I wouldn't say a lot because it's, um, kind of always been seasonal first and Italian second. So we were allowed kind of like a breadth, um, of cuisines to kind of like work into the more or sometimes less Northern Italian feel that the menu has. But, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely been able to kind of like, stretch my legs creatively and I think as all cooks and chefs know like when you're a cook and you you like you really just want to get something on the menu you want to get a dish on the menu like feel that pride of having it on the menu and having people eat your food and once you're there and you're constructing and creating the menu it it kind of is a very different feeling um because at that point you get feedback about every little thing that you put out there so like if you were trying to be creative with one thing maybe it didn't really land well with some people uh, maybe it doesn't jive with the menu, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of about taking, uh, critiques and criticisms in stride and allowing yourself to kind of like evolve. I feel like what, what you've, the decision that you've made to stay at, at Rucola is feels very old school in this New York climate, which is people go somewhere for like nine months or a year and you get people that are 24 years old and they have like 11 things on their resume. Uh, You have uh, stayed somewhere and executed consistently at at a very high level for a long time. But 
Uh, I'm curious, since you've been the chef of Rucola, is there something that you wish someone had told you when you were starting out or when you were in culinary school that that would maybe inform the decisions that, that, that you make today? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I don't know. I think no is the short answer because I think having worked at a restaurant that executed a similar kind of food with, with precision uh, prior to going to cooking school, prior to graduating and working in this industry, like I kind of had been exposed to what it felt like to be a cook. Um, as far as just being a cook goes, as far as being a chef goes, yeah, there's a million things. But, you know, I feel like people just, they don't want to give you the key to the kingdom and, like, tell you the secrets. They're like, all right, you got to go through it for yourself because then you mature and then you, you experience, uh, you know, the real kind of, like, I don't know. It's hard to describe. But how you become a chef and how you become a manager and how you lead people, you know, like, that is something that I think... Uh, I wish somebody had told me, I think now that I'm talking through it, you know, just like managing personalities, that's a huge part. There's, it's, it always feels like there's different avenues. It's like you can stay somewhere and master the space or mm -hmm. you can move around and, and interact with lots of people and glean from, from different uh, styles and different sort of price points and levels of restaurant. Do you ever right now, like in your current state, do you ever say to yourself, I, I kind of wish that Rucola the food we did was either like a two Michelin starred style or do you ever say to yourself, I kind of wish that I was just making, you know, a focaccia, two focaccia sandwiches out of like the little cutout window. Like, do you ever feel to yourself like high, high or low or do you feel like you are really content where you are, which is sort of like an upscale casual rest neighborhood restaurant? Uh, I think there's, there's always going to be part of me because of where I've worked in the past uh, that loves fine dining food and that loves that level of uh, professionalism, commitment, you know, excellence. But as far as my day-to-day -day thing, uh, I think if I had, if I just had to like make one thing forever, it would be focaccia, you know? Like I love bread so much. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I think the vision for Rucola, it's, it's, it's going well. I would not change a single thing because it's been open for seven years and that's, that's a pretty big thing. Uh, and I think that that formula works. So if I were to just like, you know, take off and do my one thing, then yeah, focaccia, hundred percent. The, you mentioned earlier that, uh, that your partner is in food. Mm -hmm. She is a chef as well. Uh, it's fascinating to me to have guests on the show that have uh, either a roommate, a partner, a spouse that uh, that works at the same level in food as them. Not necessarily chef, but sometimes someone's married to like a GM or something like that. I'm curious how it affects your life. Is it a is it good because you can vent and balance or do sometimes do you run into that thing where you're both very much so in it? that it can become like a chef echo chamber, maybe. I don't know. What is it like for both of you? Uh, I think for both of us, it's, it's a very good thing because we get to kind of come home, vent, bounce ideas off of each other, and uh, you know, we know what each other is going through, uh, more or less. So, um, yeah, I think it's been a good thing. Uh, it is, you know, it, it's nice to have somebody who understands every day 
you know, how it was, how it went and like, you know, how they can help. There's, there are challenges that are directly related to being in charge and it can sometimes be a lonely place where you have to lead and you can't necessarily lose your cool and you have to be able to solve every, every problem Mm -hmm. that, that comes your way. Has there been a situation recently that you could share with listeners where you did feel like you hadn't been accurate, prepared properly for a situation that came your way as the leader of the restaurant? Like, have you been caught off guard recently by anything in the last year? Hmm. I mean, in the last year, there's probably something that's not coming to mind, but um, nothing that was catastrophic. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, there was. It actually just happened two weeks ago. Okay, so there. since we live in a uh, residential building, there are people who live directly above the restaurant. Um, it was Julian Brizzi, the owner, but he moved about three four months ago, which is too bad. Julian, moved back. So um, these new people upstairs, I think they were taking a shower or something, and the handle for uh, the cold or the hot came off, and so they could not turn the water off. And in the middle of a Saturday night at about 9 o'clock, water started pouring into our restaurant from the ceiling from like different light fixtures, but luckily not in the dining room, like kind of around the side by the bathroom. Uh, but it was a le- like a legitimate flood, um, all the way down the stairs, all the way in the basement, e- like a bunch of dry goods got wet. So I was standing there. I was like, I have no idea what to do. So I, you know, like I texted and called Julian. He's like, you, you gotta shut off the water. So I kind of like tried to find the water main you know, shut off a couple things. And at that point it was, you know, half hour, 30, 40 minutes into Saturday night service. And, um, we had no water. So we had to, there were like four or five open tables, uh, about 20 people there who had received first courses, but were waiting on their entrees. And we just were like, we can't wash anything. We can't, you know, we can't make any more food for you right now. So we just gave people a bunch of cookies and said, sorry, come back. And, um, Eventually the water stopped, but yeah, I definitely was like, oh man, like I didn't freak out, but I was like, this is new. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, know, I guess is it is always something. Seven yeah. years in, you've got water pouring from the ceiling. Totally. totally. Uh, it's about, I guess, being able to roll with the punches and, and saying, all right, here's a problem. How can we, how can we potentially solve this flooding shower issue? Uh, I want to transition to the new project which i know you're incredibly excited about i want to hear uh how the name came to be how you started working on it sort of on the sly and uh and where you're at with it right now um so i think the idea for this new project started about three years four years ago when i wanted to make um some kind of like cocktail bitters for my family as a christmas gift is kind of like a diy thing and uh they turned out okay and I was like oh this tastes pretty good so that led to me trying to make Amaro uh, or like a Fernet or something and you know it was just like just like threw a bunch of stuff in there and and just tried it afterwards and it was uh, okay you know it wasn't great but it kind of evolved from there and um, I was talking to Claire one night she said you know you you're like you're not listening to to yourself you're saying like I want to do this. I want to do this as a, as a business. I want to make liquor. So like, think about that. And if you want to do that, you should just dive in and go for it. So, um, <clears throat> I started making Amaro and Fernet about two or three years ago. Uh, neither of which were that great, but 
you know, as you progress, uh, you kind of like tweak it. And now um, I kind of, over the last year and a half, I've decided I wanted to start an Italian spirits company called Faccia Bruto, um, which just means ugly face. Technically, it's not even grammatically correct. It should be Faccia Bruta, but at this point, uh, I'm not going to change it because it's fine. Um, so Faccia Bruto is uh, just, or Faccia Chupin is, I, I think like a colloquialism, just means kind of like ugly face, but it's a term of endearment. So um, I thought, you know, the name would make people laugh, get people talking, stick in your mind. Uh, I had to go through a couple names actually before I landed on this one because one was a wine company in California that they had copyrighted and another one I kind of didn't like very much. And so this one just came to me um, because I think one of my old chefs in San Francisco said that his wife always called him Fajabruto also. Uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think my grandma also called me it too. But um, so yeah, this uh, has been... A very difficult uh, kind of like challenge for me because working full time and trying to figure out how to get a liquor business in New York started uh, is a little complex. And um, like I was an owner in Rucola, but in order for me to be an owner and own a wholesale liquor thing, I can't be an owner in a retail distributor, which is what a restaurant is. So um, I had to give up my ownership in Rucola for this, which I felt was like a pretty even trade, um, you know, kind of investing in myself in the future in a way. Um, so yeah, uh, right now I'm making an aperitivo similar to Campari, um, the Fernet, like I mentioned, uh, an Amaro and a green walnut liqueur, Nocino. Uh, so those will be the four kind of core things that I think I start out with. The Amaro takes about six to eight months to age in a barrel. Um, and the other things can be produced relatively quickly. Nocino obviously being a seasonal thing, that's an exception to the rule. But, um, yeah, the Fernet and the Aperitivo are going to be the workhorses, I think, for the first uh, couple years. And what is the true production timeline, and how are you navigating these New York SLA waters, or whatever governing body? Is it the SLA? Uh, SLA. Who's going to be in charge of of you? Uh, The SLA and the TTB. The TTB is the the kind of federal thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Um, yeah, for right now, I've just been producing it um, for myself just to try to get the recipes nailed down um, and like having friends taste it and see what they think. But um, yeah, the, so those two, those two organizations will be governing it. And uh, I'll be submitting paperwork at the end of the month after I kind of try to rustle up maybe some more investors, get a little bit more money. And um, is, is the plan to get a uh, production facility in Brooklyn and produce it in Brooklyn? The pl- that is the plan. So I'm probably going to have a space in Industry City, hopefully. Um, and, yeah, just make it there. And the first year, year and a half, I'll just be self-distributing. So Because um, it'll just save on you know the distro costs, which are about 30% or 20%. Um, even though it is going to take up my time, I feel like it's important to create that connection and a face to the product. Is it your plan to move away from Rukla and work on this full time? That is the, that is the plan. Um, they would like me to stay involved somehow um, forever. So we've discussed a plan where I go down to three days a week and then eventually down to maybe like one day a week slash emails. Consulting. Or, yeah. Just keeping eyes on your, exactly. so, your child. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, so yeah, so I will hopefully be involved with Rucola uh, for a long time. As you move from tinkering in your kitchen to large-scale production, 
are you going to be hiring a, a, an expert or a chemist or someone who will be helping sort of dial in the ratios or does it still kind of stay old world craftsmanship of putting a lot of things in a barrel and tasting it and, and tweaking it? How, how much, how much is just you leading the charge and are, and how much is going to be, uh, science and technology contributing to the process? It's pretty much going to be me leading the charge. Um, I will have hopefully one or two, uh, part-time employees that'll help me with, you know, the, the more, uh, excruciating parts of it, like bottling, labeling, uh, packaging. But, um, for the most part, it's, I'm going to rely on myself and it's been a real learning experience doing, making this in small quantities and then making it in larger quantities, like, you know, like 15 gallon batches instead of just like a liter, you know? Um, and there is a little variance, you know, I noticed the last time I made a 15 gallon batch of my aperitivo, um, which I'm only drinking at home myself and giving to friends, um, that, uh, it maybe wasn't a little, wasn't as bitter as the one before, or like it needed a little more of this or a little less that. So there's a little variance when you scale up, but I mean, it's nothing that can't be ironed out. And is that part of the allure of it for you that there isn't a perfect perfection? I mean, like for example, you get a $12 bottle of wine from Kendall Jackson or whatever. It's the exact same. And they've done that on purpose. Are, are you pleased with that result that it might, that bottle to bottle, batch to batch, you might not have the I- identical product? Uh, for me with, with liquor, I feel like it's a lot more possible for you to have an identical product than it is with cooking food. Um, I, with cooking, there's a lot more variance because you're using, um, products that vary a little bit time to time, uh, whether it's the age of beef or vegetables, um, versus dried goods or maybe some citrus that you're putting into liquor, there will be variants and I'm perfectly fine with that. But I want it to be obviously as everybody does a consistent product that, you know, when you open time after time, will taste exactly the same or as close to it as possible. So, but I'm actually okay with the fact that there could be a little variance here and there. I think that's just part of life, you know? Let's say that this company really takes off. It not only occupies all your time, but it provides you the type of financial uh, lifestyle that that allows you to to do it full time. Does... uh, does that mean the end of your chef career or do you think that it means, oh, well, maybe I've got some money down the line to open up my other dream project, which is a food dream project after the liquor one takes off? And if yes, what might that food dream project look like? Um, I, I definitely am looking at this liquor company, not necessarily as a means to an end, but as a means to um, kind of evolve. Uh, I would like to obviously have this company be very successful. I don't want to just build it up and flip it. Um, I would like to have it for a long time. I, this, I kind of want this to be something that I can do when I'm older and is less demanding, uh, physically as just like working on the line and in a restaurant. Um, so, uh, if I were to open up something again, it would just be like a 12 or 15 seat bar with like, you know, ham, a couple small plates and like some fresh bread and lots of wine and that's it like something super simple where honestly I don't have to rely on a ton of people who send me a text message like my dishwasher did the other day at like six in the morning saying I can't put on shoes I'm not coming in today you know like I don't want to I don't want to deal with that anymore you know just like myself maybe one or two other people 
and that's it. So hopefully the the, the liquor company will you know provide me with uh, the ability to save some money, uh, a different lifestyle, and uh, you know save for the future because I don't think any almost anybody my age or younger is really saving for the future anymore. <laughs> For the time being, they can still find you at Rucola. Please tell everyone where that is located. Uh, we're at 190 Dean Street on the corner of Dean and Bond, right near uh, the Hoyt Skimmerhorn stop. And keep your eyes out, everyone, for the, the, the liquor company that is in the works right now. I'm sure more information as well. They can follow you on Instagram for more information about that. Is that a best, best way to kind of find out about what's transpiring with the spirits for now um if you just look up faccia bruto spirits um you'll see a picture of me holding some cantaloupes and that's the only picture there is because i i just want to cultivate a nice instagram page so uh until things are really happening um that's where you should look for now all right well we'll, we'll hold off and 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 be ready for that at the end of the year. Patrick, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and telling us about uh, your story and uh, Rucola and, of course, this exciting new project that is uh, in the works right now. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Everybody, thanks for listening, and remember to uh, contribute to our summer fund drive. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to help us keep this program and many other of our wonderful programs on the air Thanks for listening. Join us every single Tuesday for a new episode of The Line at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.